This is Heather Meckes, Director of Discipleship at CRC, and this is our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this inspires you, encourages you, and allows you to see how God is moving in and around you. If you would like to check out more resources, go to coopersvillereform.com. Enjoy the message. This morning, uh, before we dive into the Word of God, uh, would you pray with me? Father, your Word is precious. Your Word is powerful. Your Word is right in a world that seems so wrong. And Father, as we dive in, we're asking that our minds and our hearts would be engaged with you, that your spirit would do a work, that your spirit would stir within us what you want us to know, that we would rightfully interpret your word this morning, and that even in all of our natural biases and all of the things that we bring in to this church today, we pray that you would speak and that power would be revealed through your spirit. God, we love you and we thank you and we praise you and hallelujah for the cross of Jesus Christ by which we sit here, stand here justified by you, Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, we're in week two of this series uh, in the book of Esther, and we pray that last week was a blessing and a joy to you and your family. We left off last week with Xerxes in a fit of rage. He was pissed, to say the least. He degraded, he demeaned, and he eventually demoted and diminished and divorced his wife, Queen Vashti, because she would not come in all of her glory and splendor in what is potentially just a holy crown and nothing else in front of all of the troops. She would not parade herself around others like that. And Xerxes was angry and upset because he wanted to show off his trophy wife his trophy queen. And now we're in Esther 2, and four years have passed. Why four years? Well, a battle happened that did not go well uh, for the Persian army and for Xerxes. The king had gathered a huge army. We talked about uh, the reason why they would have had that 180-day summit following a seven-day feast. And we we shared a little bit that uh, many historians and Bible scholars agree that he was really trying to up the morale to eventually go and have a war and to invade Greece. And this is what happened when we put the Bible up in uh, context with the history books. That's exactly what happened. Think about it. If we add everything up from what we know from God's word in the history books, here's what happened. There was a six-month summit, a party, a fest with all of the high movers and shakers. Then it was followed by a seven-day feast from everyone from the highest rank to the lowest rank and everywhere in between in Xerxes' palace in his garden where they were drinking out of goblets of gold. And then after that, he demotes Queen Vashti at the seventh night of his seven-day feast. And he's angry. And then he departed, and he went to war, and he got his tail whooped. He got worked. History tells us that either one to two million men from Persia were sent to war to seek to invade Greece. And out of those one to maybe max two million men who went, only 5,000 or around so returned. It was a catastrophic loss for the Persian Empire and for Xerxes. 
they got worked. And, and history also shares that Xerxes enjoyed watching the battles that he had placed himself in and placed his nation in, in his 127 provinces that he controlled around the size of the United States of America. He enjoyed watching them from his throne lifted up kind of in the background. And it was at this war, this battle, where Xerxes had to go back with his tail in between his legs. And so these four years have passed, and that is what we know happened. It was a catastrophic loss for both Xerxes and the Persian Empire. And so here we are, four years have passed. Xerxes still doesn't have a queen. He lost over a million of his strongest men. And the first verse here in Esther 2 is going to give us a little context on what's going on potentially in Xerxes' mind at this time. And we'll be in Esther chapter 2 this morning. We hope that you would join us. We'll have the words on the screen. There's a Bible hardback, blue one, somewhere in front of you. Feel free to open it up. It's to the right of the ones and twos of the Chronicles and the Samuels, the history books. And that's uh, the last one uh, before we get into the wisdom literature. Here's what it says in Esther 2, verse 1 and 2. Later, when King Xerxes' fury has subsided, he remembered Vashti. Have you ever been in a place where you made an awful decision and years have passed? And you keep remembering and recalling and replaying that awful decision that you made. This is what I believe the author of Esther here is kind of inviting us in with the language that they used. Four years have passed. And his fury had subsided. And now it seems as if Xerxes is a bit depressed. He, realize, he realizes what he has done he realizes that his great empire is potentially at stake and everything is hitting him like a ton of bricks. And what she had done, Vashti that is, and what he had decreed about her. Verse 2 says, Then the king's personal attendants proposed. These were young men. If you have the English Standard Version, your version would read so. These young attendants, these young men who are attendants, of the king, they proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. It's crazy that God is still working in all of this. Xerxes is depressed, he's full of regret, but in the midst of all of this, God is, is still at work. I think oftentimes when we look at the scriptures, we can tend to have a religious view when we come towards them. A religious view that kind of goes something like this. We look at them and we say, man, where's the good people and where's the bad people here? We say, okay, King Xerxes, bad people. Okay, Queen Vashti, somewhere neutral. We're not sure about her. She's barely mentioned, then she's gone. Uh, okay, uh, and, and later on, we're going to see Esther and we're going to see uh, Mordecai uh, uh, and we're going to see some, some good people and, uh, and we kind of separate things. We say God uses the good people, but God does not use the bad people. We say that's how God gets things done. He, he raises up good people, and then he'll never use the bad people. And that is a horrible way to interpret Scripture. It's a very religious way to interpret scripture, and it's a very wrong way to interpret scripture. Some of the greatest people that God used were some of the biggest boneheads and idiots, I mean, that you could ever imagine. I mean, I mean I'm not saying they weren't wise, I'm not saying they weren't strong, I'm not saying any of that, but I mean, look at David. I mean, what a vile man. You go, it says, yeah, David had a heart for God. He also had a heart for someone else's wife. And he slept with her. And then he had her husband killed. You look at Moses, murdered a man. 
You look at Noah, well, he built an ark. He was a righteous man, sure. But then what happened afterwards? He got tanked, slept in a tent. It's just a mess of a situation. And so when you read the Bible and you read it religiously, thinking that, well, here's the good people, here's the bad people, God uses these people, God doesn't use the bad people, you're out of your mind. You're not reading the same book. Because the fact is, the author of Romans, Paul, tells us, no one is good. No, not one. We're all a bunch of messed up sinners, and you find that all throughout this book, and God seeks to use us to bring about his good plans. And God does seek to indwell us through his spirit to bring about holiness, to bring about a word that we would call sanctification, a growing in godliness, a growing in holiness. But it doesn't look like this. It looks like this with ups, downs, burps, hiccups, messes, failures, and everything else in between. But in the end, God is bringing about his plans through a sinful people. And we're seeing that here while we see things from the ground level. God has this aerial view of it all. And he's working through wicked men like King Xerxes. He's working through the bone-headed decision of a prideful man to demote and to divorce his wife due to selfish reasons. He's working through wars that are all about power, prestige, and prominence. He's working through wars. And in all of this, He's somehow working it out for his glory and his kingdom purposes are interwoven through it all. It's remarkable. As Connor alluded to in his his prayer, it's providence. It's the providential hand of God working in mess. What seems like mess to us, God is still working. Through all of the disgusting decisions that people make, and that people are responsible for, God is still working. So this morning, in preparation for this sermon, I I decided to write a couple of spoken word pieces to try to help and engage in this text in in a way that may be a bit artistic and different. Because I like to keep you on your toes, and God likes to keep me on my toes. So here's the first of two. God is working, holy, majestic, righteous, but let's get back to that word, holy. Might this just be an attribute worthy of double the praise, ancient of days, God working behind the stage, God infinitely wise like gray hair. He's not mentioned here, but he is near. Everything we are that's good, that comes from him, everything we're not that's evil, that comes from sin. He's holy. He's set apart. His plan is Noah's ark. It's the only way to salvation. Every other way is condemnation, but in Christ, there's no such thing. God's holiness reigns supreme. He's the holy and infinite king declaring the end From the beginning, his purpose will be established in full measure. He will accomplish all of his good pleasure. He is the infinite Savior. And our life is poof, but a vapor. Holy is he. Vapor are we. I'll choose to not trust me, but the one who is holy. Moving along. We have now what is about to be some Miss Persia pageant. And I don't know if you've ever seen The Bachelor. I'm sorry if you have. Uh, But this is what it's going to look like, but even on a more raunchy scale here in Esther 2. Here's how it reads in the first half of verse 4. This was the game plan that, was produced. Esther 2 4 says, Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. 
This whole selection is all about who can please the king. Who can please Xerxes? The king wasn't just looking for a bribe. He was looking for someone, some woman, who can check off every box on his disgusting, perverted, prideful list. He was looking for someone who was fit to be queen. She'd have to be dignified, graceful, able to entertain and converse. She would have to be gorgeous, talented as well. Along with all of that pressure, there was a deep level of physical intimacy that was stripped away from these young ladies. And they had to give away a lot during this lengthy process. Let's continue reading Esther 2, 7 through 9. Here's how the word of God reads. The story reads like this. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, that's her Greek name, that's Esther, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order in edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Now I'm going to share three looming opinions on Esther going to the harem here. And I'll share a little bit where I lean, but I'll allow you to discern and dig apart the text where you may lean. So there's opinion one. Some believe that the Hebrew in the text here suggests that Esther really did not have a say in the matter. It simply says that Esther was taken to the king's palace. That is passive in the Hebrew text here. It's the passive voice, meaning it simply happened to her. It just happened. She did not choose to go, nor was she allowed to go by Mordecai. She just had to go. So that's opinion one. Esther had to go. Opinion two is, even if she didn't have much of a choice, that there's no evidence in the scriptures here that she went kicking and screaming. Uh, it seems to be from the text, and as we'll continue to read, she was in it to win it. She won the favor of the chief eunuch over the harem, uh, Haggai. She won his favor. So, I mean, she was in it to win it. The text seems to share with us. And so even if she was maybe forced to go or really encouraged to go, uh, there's no evidence that she left kicking and screaming. She was enjoying, it seems like, her royal treatment, the shrimp, the steak, the martinis, the beauty treatments that she was given. She seemed to enjoy this. She had seven attendants, servants under her, caring for her, meeting her. Needs. I mean, seemed like uh, that Esther was, was kind of from what the text shows us. And the text doesn't show us a lot, but the tone of it seems to be that Esther was in it to win it. And then there's this third opinion, and this is kind of where I camp out. Suggests that Esther did have an option. At this point in the story of Esther, no one seems to be in relationship with God. The author doesn't suggest that Esther is seeking the Lord in all of this, asking, Lord, what is your will? What is your plan? What is your ways? I, I want to do your will. There There's none of that evidence here in the text. No one in the story at this point seems serious about a relationship with God. No one. No, no one's praying. No one's mentioning God. No one's worshiping God. No one's giving to God. No one is going to Jerusalem where the people of God we're to gather in the presence of God. No one is celebrating the feasts and the festivals. 
No one here is offering a sacrifice for their sin. There's nothing. Nobody's quoting verses from the prophets. Up until this point, we see none of that, nothing spiritual. Also, she's living far away from God. The people of God at this time were called to go back to Jerusalem. You see that in Ezra and Nehemiah, and you see that at the fulfillment of Daniel in the book of Daniel. There was a king, a pagan king, but a good king nonetheless, Cyrus. And he declared that the people of God were able to go back to their homeland. And so many went. Isaiah shares that they should go. He prophesied, go to Jerusalem. Esther and Mordecai chose not to go along with others, but many went. Nehemiah, Ezra, see that in those two books prior to Esther. But Esther and Mordecai chose not to go. They're living literally far away from God. And it's by their choice. Lastly, there seems to be an indication that she could have said no. Now, you may say, well, Pastor John, if she said no, there would be repercussions. Okay, let's assume that's true. What do we call those people who say no to tyrants in the Bible? We call them saints, bold, and Christ followers, God followers. They say no to tyrants. Even when the tyrants say you must do this and they say no, that's bold. That's beautiful. That's celebrated, and God often meets people in those places. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come to mind. They said, no, we won't. And God met them. But the truth is, there's no indication that she would have gotten punished at all for saying no. We saw Queen Vashti stand up against the king, and what happened to her? Nothing. She was dismissed. She actually got what she wished. I'm sure, according to the text here, she wanted out of that situation. It was a mess. She wasn't punished that we know of. She, she just had to leave her royalty behind, and she was dismissed. But the truth is, that's all we can see. It's what is in the story. It's in the text. It's all the author gives us. So those are three opinions, and I'll allow you to duke it out on where you lie on opinions one, two, or three. But this Haggai, as we learned from verse eight, was the eunuch in charge of the king's harem. Now, a harem was a surely demeaning and grotesque status symbol in ancient Persia. The historian Josephus believes that there were around 400 women in this harem at the time of Esther. 400 women. And another one of the Greek historians in the 5th century B.C. reports that not only were there women taken to the harem, but there were also 500 young boys who were taken and castrated a year to serve as eunuchs in the Persian court. So to be fair, it's young ladies and young men were treated horribly in this culture at this time whether you were a eunuch or whether you were a concubine, you were treated less than human. So it was a mess of a culture. But here's the flat out truth. Sin has shattered our view of sexuality. So you have this grotesque where every woman is just a number and they have numbers one through 400 or so on them, and they have a date in which they're going into the king's palace. It's not not a date, sort of speak, where you would have a conversation, where you would have maybe a meal and maybe a, a glass of wine and get to know each other. But this is something much more grotesque and sensual and sickening that is happening, where these women have a number, maybe Esther's was five or 359, and on a certain day, number 359, and there she would go, and then she would return, most likely before the sun had raised and before the king had woken up, and then she would go and become a concubine unless 
the king had called her back. It was a horribly grotesque matter that we're, that we're looking at here. Like I said, the bachelor's raunchy, but this has it beat. This is horrible. And today, Hollywood media has given us an unrealistic view of intimacy. And I believe pornography has distorted our view of sex and what it's meant to be in the marital relationship, which leads us to the relationship dysfunction that we have today. But thankfully, God desires to redeem, to restore what has been fractured in our relationships. From death to life, darkness to light, Christ is working in his people, bridging the gap between God and man. His death on the cross, appeasing the Father's wrath, embracing this new promise, brings about new passions. A new creation should come with new actions. I say should. But for some, we've taken wild rides with Persians, stripping the innocence of virgins, living the high life, splurging, trying to live our best life now type of version, dipping our feet in the puddle when God's calling us to full submersion. I'm certain that God can restore what has been broken from hate speech spoken over you to lust holding on to you, choking you. Let me share what God's heart longs to speak over you. You are loved. You are created in his image. He is near to the brokenhearted. He is never distant. You are called and not forsaken. You are changed in Christ. You are a new creation. His grace is greater than your past. And although your sin is greater than Mount Everest, I serve a God who can take a mountain and cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. His love is simply that vast. Now let me close on the question, what is really holding you back? What is holding you back from submitting fully to this king, from coming with all of your impurities and brokenness and sexual distortions and deviances? What is holding you back, church, from coming to him? Let's continue reading Esther 2, verses 10 and 11. Esther had not revealed her nationality. This is, the, this is the first hint of anti-Semitism that we have here in Esther chapter two. She, she not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Is it ever good that we do that? That we hide who we are? That there is this sense that Hadassah and Esther, uh, even though they're the same person, they're kind of living dual lives. She's kind of stuck in between a rock and a hard place. How many of us can relate with that in life? You feel like you have one foot into Christ and one foot into the world. You're kind of living the in-between. You're looking to appease this group of people, but yet you're in church looking to appease this group of people. There's some sense that I think Esther is living in that tension at this time. Verse 12, or verse 11 suggests, every day Mordecai, he, walked back and forth near the country yard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Mordecai is, is to be Esther's dad. I mean, Mordecai had taken up the banner He'd taken up the responsibility to care for Esther, his younger cousin, the passing of her father and mother. And it seems like Mordecai at this time is also living in some regret. 
He's going back to the gate, back to the gate, day by day, checking on Esther at the harem, getting any bit of information that he can. I think sometimes fathers can live like this as well with their daughters. They kind of let them go, do their own thing, live kind of passive. You kind of let them go, sow some wild oats, make some mistakes, live wild, reckless. But yet we text, but yet we check on them. Are they okay? Oh, I love my daughter so much. Oh, are they okay? But are we really putting our foot down and loving them hard but well with a mix between grace and honey, no. You're not. You're not going here. And I don't care if I have to step in between you and Xerxes. You're not going. Because I love you. And you're my daughter. And you're young. And young people sometimes do stupid things. And they think of stupid devices. And I don't want you to be hurt. But in the name of independence, we let them roll. And we live in regret oftentimes because of it as men, as fathers, as mothers. I feel like Mordecai is in that position right here in this story. Let's continue to read Esther 2, 12 through 14. The story continues. Before a young woman's turn came to King Xerxes, we get a little bit of context of what this all may have looked like. She had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. There's this year-long beauty treatment that she is going through. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz. Uh, That is one of the top Persian hip-hop artists of that day. The king's eunuch who was in charge of all of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. And so the girls would undergo all of these beauty treatments, a year-long process. And then when a girl's turn came, she would go before the king and spend the night with him. Then after the night was over, she would return to a different part of the harem where she became a concubine. She would not see the king again unless he was pleased with her and he summoned her by name. The author here almost seems repulsed by the king. He's just taken all the most beautiful women of the country into his own harem and he sleeps with them one by one by one, night after night. And if he doesn't like what he gets, too bad for them and their family. But now the king has slept with her. She has to remain in the harem. It really was quite despicable, inhumane. And I think we can all agree that Xerxes is a prideful and arrogant pig. He wallows in his own power, not seeming to care how it may affect someone else. King Xerxes is a Xerxes. I mean, he is a, he is a punk. And not much has changed though. Young men's, Many of them today have a lot of Xerxes in them. They have woman after woman. Some young men may have 12 women in his lifetime, maybe 15, 20 women in his lifetime. Dating is a new phenomenon that started some 100 or so years ago. 
just allows you to just try it. I mean, just the cultural norm here is try it out. Don't like it, move on. Try it out. Don't like it, move on. Maybe after maybe 5, 7, 10, 12, 15, maybe then. Maybe then you'll find you'll want to settle down, maybe mid-30s. Maybe settle down, maybe not. Maybe you get married at 25, get divorced at 30, mess around a little bit, get married again at 38 mess around, get divorced again. I mean, the cycle continues. We, we live in this. A lot of young men have a little bit of King Xerxes in them. Some young men may read this and think, well, this is like my fantasy. It's disgusting. It's perverted. It's the result of a distorted heart that was meant to, one, have its full pleasure and full satisfaction in God alone and then also in one woman and a bride and a wife and someone who you will lay down your life in sickness and in health. But we got a lot of young men who have some King Xerxes in them and it's culturally accepted and normal and we allow it. Have you ever been in a relationship when you felt like you needed to spend all of your time and energy on your image in order to appease the boy or the girl, the husband or the wife that you have? It's a sad reality that many of us live in, especially women. The image of what beautiful is has been engraved in the psyche of women in particular from internet, television, movies, magazines, pornography. It's distorted. So if we've set such standards in our relationship for others, let me say this. If your boyfriend or girlfriend, ladies, got a boyfriend, and they set these standards for you, and, and your life looks a bit like this right now with them, dump them before it's too late. And you may be saying, I, I can't do that. I'm not capable of dumping them. I just call the office, schedule a meeting. I will call them and dump them for you. Okay? And young men may be the same. I mean, I, th- that's not crazy. It's for some young men. I mean, they have a woman who's pressuring them and pulling them. It's, it, it's certainly possible. Young ladies today are... Have a have a pounce on them. They but potentially I don't know, but that could that could be a real thing. And same thing, get out of the relationship. Don't play games. Now, if it's husband or wife, then we need to have some hard conversations. If that's what life looks like, if that's reality for you, right now in your marriage, then we have to have harder conversations that God can prayerfully restore and redeem what has been broken and jacked up. Psalm 139, 14 says, I praise you, the psalmist says, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Virtue should be what we chase in a relationship. Virtue should be what we chase. When I first met my my wife, her beauty caught my eye first but it was her virtue that gripped my heart. And I'll never forget, we were uh, on our way back, and I share this story, so I'm sorry if you've heard it before, but we were on our way back from our first date at Olive Garden. I never let her pay for a meal. Young man, you flip the bill. You gotta work overtime, you work harder. If not, you better learn to cook, because then that's what you're eating. You You don't let her touch the bill. And I was taking her home to her apartment after her first date. And it's beautiful. Sun was set. Beautiful time. And uh, I got out of the car, and I was going to walk her to the door like a gentleman. And I was going to just say, God bless you. I'm excited. I'd like there to be a second date. And uh, she decided, because this is a godly woman, I just want to let you know I'm, I'm not kissing you here. Like, man, is my breath that bad? Um, And uh, she goes, I'm not kissing you. And I had no intent, honest truth, of kissing her at all. And uh, I said, well, I just want to let you know 
I don't want to kiss you unless we get married. And then I thought to myself, you're an idiot. Like, you are dumb. And, uh, and I saw her kind of go, what? This was date one, buddy. Like, the M word already? Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that was uh, on the wedding on October 18th, 2014. was our first kiss up there uh, on that stage. We stuck with that. It wasn't easy. It was hard. Um, but we, we stuck with that. And we shared that. And I've shared that with young people on bus trips. We'll go to Florida. We'll go to all over the nation. And I'll share that story. I think Helen's been there a time or two when we've shared that story. And these young people, especially young ladies, you would see them literally tear up. Because... They realized, man, I've lost a lot of that. And look, I, I share my story. I'm like, well, man, I blew it for a long time, 14, 15. Lost my virginity at 14 years old. 14 years old. And I remember I wasn't a believer, and I just, I just stood in the hallway of my room. I really feel led to tell someone this. I stood in the hallway of my room, and I wasn't a believer, but the conviction of the Holy Spirit came over me in such a way that like I was depressed. And I just blew it for 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. And I came to the Lord and he began to restore what had been fractured and broken. And so when we share this with young people, we don't share this as legalism, like you need to do this. This is the only way to do it. No, we share this because even if you are broken, and I know you are, even if you have stumbled, and I know you have, God can restore that. God can redeem that. God can reclaim that in your life. You must know this. So you may be addicted to pornography. Husbands, you may be addicted to pornography. God can restore that in your life but you must flee and you must trust him. There's a whole lot of things that the Bible has to say about sexual immorality. There's a whole lot of things that the Bible says about sin in general, but only one thing about sexual immorality is different than all the rest of the sins. It actually says that we're not to go hand-in-hand combat with it, we're actually to flee it. It says a lot of other sins. I mean, man, we, we break down, we mortify. But it says, Paul said, sexual immorality, uh, don't mess with that. Leave the room, run, flee. And I feel like sometimes, especially young men, young women as well, we, we, we think we're stronger than we are. You're not strong when it comes to that. Okay? No one really is. You must obey the scriptures and trust God. But what's been broken can be redeemed. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's conclude. Let's get out of here. Esther 2, I'm a mess. Esther 2, 17 and 18. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women I mean, imagine how you feel if you're Esther, just reading that. Oh, great. You know, the kings have tried me more than the other 399 women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king had a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all of her For all of his nobles and officials, he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Uh, And we'll we'll stop the story here, but we'll conclude on this. Esther is the queen, right? Right? Now we have a little context on what that meant and all of the mess that was in that. She had to perform to earn her position. I do not want to excuse her or Mordecai's actions because the scriptures seem to be clear that there was a lot of compromising going on from all parties. However, God still uses them. And I want you to see that, that God still uses them. 
Maybe you think because of your past, maybe because of your current sin that God can't use you. Maybe you think you need to be primped and proper in order to be noticed by the king. But I want you to know that God will and wants to do his cleansing work in you. You just need to come to him. But sometimes I feel like we have this idea in our religiosity that we need to go through a purification or a beautification process of our own before we can come to God. Like Esther had to do it here, six months of this, six months of that, little perfume, little myrrh, and, and then we come to the king, all primp and proper. And I think some of us believe that in Christianity. That like, I need to get some things together. Like, I need to get my life together. I need to work on this for six months, then this on six months, and then this and maybe another six months. And then I come to the king, and he'll be happy with me because of how beautiful I am and all the work I've done. That's backwards. God does not call you to make yourself primp and proper and clean before you come to him. God says, you come to me in your mess, in your addiction. You come to me in your sexual deviance. You come to me in your lying, in your pride. You come to me with all of your failures. You come to me as disgusting as you may feel in your soul. You come to me and I will restore you and I will make you clean, and I will love you, and I will raise you up and build you up. You don't clean yourself. I have the cleansing work within me. My blood on the cross cleanses all sinners, all types, all races, all shapes, all sizes. Let me do the work that I died to purchase for you. You don't do the beautification work. I'll give you my spirit and my spirit will come in you and indwell you. And it's this process in theology that we call sanctification this idea that when the Spirit of God enters a person, a man or a woman, he will change them. There is no evidence ever in Scripture, only on the contrary, that if you have become a believer and you have trusted on Jesus Christ and you have a profession of faith, then you don't change in this life. You don't grow in your relationship with God in this life. There's no evidence that that is genuine at all in Scripture. But if you believe, if you trust, if you submit, there is great assurance in the scriptures and in testimonies all around here that God will begin to work in you and he will finish the work that he started. He is faithful to finish the work that he started in Christ Jesus. You believe that? Do you trust him in that? And look, I'm not saying if you're a believer here, well, I'm still wrestling with this, Pastor John. I'm still wrestling with that. Go, come join the club, okay? We're all in that boat together. But are you submitting it? Are you releasing it? Are you giving it up? Are you living in it and reveling in it and enjoying it? No evidence. No evidence of that in Scripture for a believer to live a lifelong rebellion against God. I was listening to this sermon with Jackson on Friday night. First sermon I ever heard online when I came to Christ at 17. Jackson listened to it as well. and uh, It's called the Shocking Youth Message by Paul Washer. My goodness, that guy. <laughs> Unbelievable message. And he shares about assurance of faith with 5,000 young people at a Baptist church camp. And it's powerful. But there is this idea that we have adopted in American Christianity, and he shares a little bit about it. That we just believe, you just say a prayer. 
We get kids to do this. We get adults to do this. Say a prayer and let's come and get baptized. Now you're assured you're going to heaven. Life is great. It'll be better. But if you leave here and you don't seek God and you don't love God and there's no spiritual vitality within you, excitement in you, God's not stirring in your heart, God's not speaking to you, you're not seeking him, there's no evidence of your salvation. You're no more saved than before you hit the water. If there's no life within you, spiritual life, if that is dead and gone, you need to go to the Father and repent. But we have bought a lie and sold a bill of goods to Americans that just come here, raise your hand, say a prayer, and you're saved. Your life is great now. And there's nothing like that in Scripture, nothing like that whatsoever in Scripture. So, I pray that God, and I think when they blank out the screen, I think that's like, John, you've, you've gone too long. And there it goes. Now, now it's blinking. So. But I pray, this is important stuff, and we could talk about this and teach on this for, for days, for weeks, for months, for years. But I pray you experience God. And I pray that you know that just because you have wrestled with sin, you've lost the battles, you're struggling with sin, you're indwelled with sin right now, you're going home, you have sin on your agenda, you have it planned out, I'm doing this at this time, I hope you know it's not too late to turn to God. We're going to see, as we continue in this series, some glorious things um, in this book. And I pray that you'll continue uh, to join us as we see them unfold in God's sovereign hand uh, move throughout the whole book. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. God, uh, in all of this and being long-winded and everything else, Father, you are good, you are faithful, you are redeemer, restorer, you are our life, and we are grateful for you. And Father, we pray as we go out about uh, our day and go throughout our week. We pray, Father, that you would meet us in a powerful way. And I pray, Father, for anyone here who just feels dead in their sin, in their transgression, that they would know that you are one call away and new life is one call away and that they can live renewed, restored, redeemed lives, transformed lives. Not simply seeing transformation on a page, but seeing transformative work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, in their souls, in their hearts. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in the mighty and precious name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Please stand and worship with us.